This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is May 13th, 2021, and this is episode 239. I'm Strata Lundabom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, BC might be getting benches to fit all the new MLAs that the government is going to bring about. And we finally have a sick leave strategy, which will come into effect once this bill passes, hopefully. First, thank you to the 101 people who contribute to the show every month. You can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast, enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. Let's talk about benches, Scott. The NDP dropped a somewhat surprise bill. No one had really expected this to come. There had been rumors or dreams among the like partisans about changing how we draw the electoral map in this province. But on Monday, I believe it was, they dropped Bill 7, the Electoral Boundaries Commission Amendment Act 2021, a nice short bill with two parts, one that expands the ability of the legislature to hold MLAs from 87 to potentially 93, and the second to really change how the Boundary Commission will operate and what parameters they have set. The press release called it Restoring Independence to the Electoral Boundaries Commission. So how were we gerrymandered before? The bill doesn't really change the system here in BC. We have an Electoral Boundaries Commission that gets established about a year after an election. And I believe it looks at the population in BC and makes recommendations to the legislature about here's how many people live in all these different places. All the ridings should be within a certain range of each other. But there was a big carve out for 17 seats. And we'll talk about that in a minute, I'm sure. So that's what they mean by restore and independence. When I hear restore independence, I typically think more along the lines of not do what the US does and just have it all drawn up all funny by the politicians but that is not what we had here we did have an independent one they just had some constraints put on them before yeah the commission itself is the chief electoral officer a current or former judge of the supreme court or court of appeal which is appointed by the lieutenant governor on advice of council so it's picked by the premier and cabinet, and another person who is picked by the speaker on advice of the premier and leader of the opposition. So realistically, two of the three people on the Boundaries Commission could be chosen by the premier's office if they wanted to really exert their influence. But they aren't just hacks. Like judges do tend to be, all judges in this province do tend to be pretty nonpartisan. And I'm assuming the idea of the speaker picking someone similarly gets out of there. So it's not just generally three ex-party members, but... And also the chief electoral officer tends not to be someone from political background either. Yeah. I guess technically the government could fire the chief electoral officer, install their own, but that would hopefully be a pretty big scandal. So we have a fairly independent Electoral Boundaries Commission, thankfully. No one looks at the BC map and says it's too gerrymandered or uh, scratched around with. The one thing that stood out to people who pay a lot of attention is, especially if you live in Metrovan, you notice we have 30,000 people per riding, but you get up into northern BC and you have significantly smaller ridings. Yeah, well, it's more than uh, 30,000, I think, here in Vancouver. I'm just popping up my riding. My riding's population is over 53,000 for Vancouver Mount Pleasant. Does, I knew does, I was going to get that wrong. Yeah, doesn't drop down to 30,000 until you hit, head up north into those ridings. But yeah, that's the thing is there's a pretty big skew between how much 
say my vote here in Vancouver Mount Pleasant is worth compared to a voter in Peace River North or Skeena or one of the other very geographically large but demographically small ridings in the interior north. Yeah, and the reason for that, it comes from changes made to the Boundary Commissions Act in 2014 by the BC Liberals that said there are three specific regions where the size of the seats shall not get too big, essentially. They said the five seats in the Caribou Thompson, the four in Columbia Kootenai, and the eight in the north, 17 in total, they're sizable geographic seats. So let's freeze those in time and force the rest of the seats to fill in in metro van and that has the effect of helping preserve the accountability in some ways because a very large geographic seat is hard to connect with your MLA but it also had this effect of essentially making those seats disproportionately influential because you know if you are a voter who has essentially half as many people in your riding, you have twice the say as someone else. Yeah, which is not exactly good for democracy and tends to skew things quite a bit. And it just so happened to turn out that these seats tended to be overwhelmingly BC Liberal. Even in this last election, just in 2020, 13 of those seats went to the Liberals and four went to the NDP. That's Kootenai West, Nelson Creston, North Coast, and Stakine, where it's viewed on the NDP side as just a way to protect for the liberals to protect their own like base but i think you probably have a different perspective on why this is a bad system even for from the bc liberals perspective yeah my general problem with this is that it lets the liberals kind of skate by a bit on being very much the rural party and not paying as much attention to the city and the the lower mainland as they should because it does skew things quite significant or reasonably significantly at least with respect to a few seats in that direction and I mean, the general trend in the liberal party i guess a lot of politics generally not just here in bc is that the parties are becoming more geographically divided and as long as that's the case we don't want to further accelerate that by having disproportionate riding sizes so i'm hoping this change, which is just good on a pure democracy level, will also help nudge the BC Liberals back towards being a more all-of-BC party? That's the hope, right? I think the challenge is when you look at this from just like where politics is, it does feel almost like opportunistic. The NDP using its majority to cripple or to impede the ability of the BC Liberals to hold their safe seats. It puts them in jeopardy and they could lose a couple seats here, really making it more structurally advantageous for the governing party. As you point out, though, that like the reasons, like the current system privileges liberal MLAs in the North. And so trying to balance that out and making them have to actually fight for the province as it is and not how it's drawn to be in their favor is probably better for our democracy overall. But it's almost surprising the NDP, maybe surprising, the NDP actually did it. Yeah. Um, because it is so fundamental to the North and it looks like an attack on the privileges of the people of the North. Yeah. I've had uh, mutual friends of ours who are affiliated with the NDP at one point a couple of years back to defend their dis- not changing it earlier along those lines. So it's a it's an interesting change of course here, and I'm glad to see it. But, but yeah, it does come around to maybe annoying a few rural voters. But honestly, I think the NDP can afford to consider how big gains how big their gains were in the last election in areas that are. Not exactly rural, but more rural-friendly and, I think, generally more sympathetic to concerns of rural British Columbians. And the NDP can, like you say, worry a bit less about those votes, particularly if they're set to gain some of these potential six new districts. Now, I say potential because 
these changes just empower the commission to make recommendations, like I said. So there's no necessary change coming to the size of the BC legislature. That said, when asked about how you would fit six more MLAs in the BC legislature as it is right now, given that all the seats are full, the House leader for the government, Mike Farnworth, got very excited. And maybe I'll just cut that clip in here because it's great. Thank you for making my day. This question is, as a, as a obviously a legislative assembly parliamentary geek and as someone who, who really underst understands how this place works, absolutely, and it's called benches. And they have them in the House of Commons in the UK and they have them in the parliaments in New South Wales and benches are the answer to any issues around that. Honestly, I think that's the most giddy I've seen a politician be in a long time. He was literally red in the face and smiling from ear to ear. It was weird, endearing in a way. So these potential seats, when you look at the population of the largest seats in the region, many of them are in the lower mainland, some are in Fraser Valley. The interesting ones, there's potentially one could fit in the capital region to bring its average down. But I think the really interesting one is Kelowna has some of the largest seats right now and is really aching for more representation and that's ground that's probably fairly fertile for the bc liberals at least yeah i think so they, they are likely to pick up a seat there depending on how the boundaries are drawn in the lower mainland i could see that at least helping them out a bit because there are parts of the lower mainland that are fairly liberal friendly but are put in with a larger uh group that isn't so you could potentially see a couple pickups as well just depending on how things shake out here at least once upon a time you could now it's a bit more up in the air yeah well you i'm thinking like uh yale town for example is actually a fairly liberal friendly area but it gets lumped in with a good chunk of the rest of the downtown and a south falls creek area and it i think skews it or not i shouldn't say skew it a bit because that implies there's a natural but it, it does make it more competitive than it would be if say it was just i think yale town itself not that Yale Town's big enough for uh, a full riding, but you get where I'm getting at. And there's parts of the west side of Vancouver and whatnot where just depending on where the line ends up being could be helpful to the Liberals or it could be bad for their prospects as well. It's also worth noting this whole speculation may be moot as the commission's new directions under this legislation, assuming, of course, that the legislation passes largely unchanged, which is fairly likely given the NDP's strong majority government. The commission is tasked to recommend electoral districts with populations, quote, plus or minus 25% of the average electoral district. So that would require some, many of those northern ridings to get significantly larger geographically to fit more people in. I think some of them will have to double yeah, BC is about 5 million people. Divide that out by 93, which is the new maximum number of seats. And that gets you an average riding size of 53,760 plus or minus bit. If you go plus or minus 25%, that means as low as 40,000 or as high as 67,000. Which, you know, it that's a good size range, but the smallest ridings in the province are 21,000, I think, first the time. So that's a pretty big change there. And that almost certainly means it's going to get merged with a neighbor. Now, the one caveat is that the commission is allowed to recommend districts with populations outside that range. And they would have to consider factors like population, geography, means of communication, and means of transportation to help ensure effective representation. So it may actually be that the commission looks at the province, talks to people in the north, looks at the geography and says, you know what, actually, these are near the maximum. And I could even see an argument made that many of the northern ridings tend to have a larger indigenous population and expanding those ridings geographically would diffuse their voice out. Now, that gets complicated because it doesn't really account for urban indigenous populations and others across the province. But there's maybe an angle there that would have to be considered. 
given the government's commitment to UNDRIP. Yeah, with the communication stuff, uh, as the last year has shown, we're actually fairly well set up to communicate without necessarily being in the same physical spot as each other. So I'm wondering how important that is compared to, say, what it was like 20 years ago. So we'll have to keep our eye on the Electoral Boundaries Commission. Maybe they'll come up with some interesting recommendations. I know it's always fun to see what names of constituencies they come up with because it's like the most trivial but sometimes fun thing to see. They name one after a former premier. I know Alberta likes to do that. I don't think so. BC tends to name theirs after the geography, which is more or less the Canadian standard. So, and I can't think of any areas that share a name with the premier. That was probably Douglas something, but other than that, you're not going to have, say, uh, Kamloops and more to Cosmos. What's a Quilchena? Oh, it actually is an unincorporated municipality, but it's one that's in the interior, not in Vancouver. That is super weird. There is a park. Okay, that's, that's like probably what it things, got named maybe. after then. Yeah. There's some weird names, but for the most part, yeah, they tend to be geographic. Anyway, big changes coming to the BC legislature. Benches. Hopefully. Oh, they just renovate the building, make it larger. So that was the uh, plan B. And and seismically sound at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you have, you already have to upgrade the thing, or, or should upgrade the thing, because if there's one thing we've learned over the past year, it should be that disasters can strike unexpectedly, and well, the big earthquake's about as expected a disaster as you can have in this area, and it really makes no sense for the premier and the government to be in a very seismically vulnerable building. So yeah, just Upgrade the damn thing and increase the chamber size while you're at it. Moving on to our next segment. The legislature might not be getting an upgrade, but one thing that is the Employment Standards Act is BC has announced they will finally be bringing in a sick leave program. We'll be bringing in Doug Ford's sick leave program, in fact. One very similar to it. So this was announced yesterday on Wednesday that would provide legislation to enable up to three paid days of sick leave related to COVID-19 and also that there would be a permanent sick leave program being started at the end of the year or just technically start of next year. Uh, so this would let full and part-time employees who are eligible take leave Employers would have to pay their regular wages, but can apply for reimbursement from the government up to a maximum of $200 per day. This would be applicable to any employer that does not currently pay sick leave benefits, uh, such as small and medium-sized businesses. So this is overall pretty good, right? It is takes it, the... like It's better than it's, we, where we are. But if you're evaluating it on the basis of what's the problem and how good is this at solving it, the problem is COVID-19, or at least the immediate pressing problem is COVID-19, which last I checked generally lasts about 14 days. And realistically, there's at least a 24-hour period from when a person first feels their symptoms to the time they have a test result back. So in terms of dealing with those two aspects, this seems short of what you would expect if the goal was to have people not go into work when they are sick with the COVID. Or even suspected. Yeah, it's definitely not enough. And it's also not effective until the bill becomes law with royal assent, which is weird because the you can take some paid time off to go get your vaccine bill was retroactive to the day it was introduced. So I don't know why there's that discrepancy there. So we're waiting on this bill to pass. In the meantime, people are still getting a cough, having to take that day off work, 
having to get a test, which hopefully you can get the same day, maybe you get it the next day, and then you have to wait for the test. And so that might be your three days used up. If that test comes back negative, you don't suddenly get your three paid sick days back. So next time you get a cough, you have to make do and hopefully get the federal benefit in which is retroactive. And if you are sick, you've just burned through your three days waiting for your test result or getting the first symptoms, trying to get the test and then getting the results back, which does leave you hanging out in the cold for the rest of the time you're infectious. Yeah, it's better than nothing and it helps. It's late and it's, as as we say, it's not enough for people who might need it. I know people who've had to go for tests two, three times and they come back negative. Thankfully, most of them have paid sick leave from their employers, but... I've had three COVID tests done since the start of the pandemic. I, yeah, thankfully I've been able to make it work with work fairly easily without any challenges, but not everyone is in my position. And I think there are probably people who've had more tests than I have for sure. Like the one thing that's useful in this program is that $200 a day for the employers does take some of the strain off of small businesses who in the short term are already struggling and you go, you know what, we need to make, we're not going to hit them with that right now. Like I'm a strong advocate for just make it part of the Employment Standards Act the way vacation days are and the employment employers and bosses will just have to deal with it. That's how everywhere else in the world pretty much does it. Like the UK has 20 vacation days that you have to pay out. We can ask a little bit more of employers. Doing so right now is probably not the best idea. So 200 bucks a day, that covers $25 an hour. So any employee making up to that can take those days off without the employer hurting at all. Now, they might hurt in the short term because this program is going to be administered by WorkSafe BC. They're not going to have their system set up until potentially 30 days after the bill passes. And then they'll have to apply for reimbursement. So there might be a slight cash flow issue. That's hard to avoid in this whole situation. I think the cash flow issue is better on the employment side than on the employee side because there's usually a little bit of flex in the company's books. It depends on how big the company is and how uh, of course. well they're running at the moment, which, yeah, in these times can be hit or miss. What I don't get is the politics of this. So people have been talking about paid sick leave for over a year now, specifically in relation to COVID. People have been painting on the NDP's door asking them about this for that entire time. And just doing it now and doing this somewhat half-assed approach to it you get none of the political upsides because everyone feels the NDP was dragged to this kitchen and streaming which is also off-brand for them or hurts them in their kind of core message they want to put out they, they don't get any of the upsides to bringing this in why wait until now what, what was the thing that was stopping them from doing this the, I think they estimated it's what, $300 million that it might cost to do this approach with the $200 per day for up to three days for the number of employees this would apply to, which in the grand scheme of COVID spending is actually not that much for BC. Like it's not a small program, but it could be bigger. And if we still have some slush fund to play with it, it's it sits in the realm of, the things that like Canadian politicians are just unwilling to push the envelope, it seems like, for on so many issues. It's we all wait for one other premier to do something and then we'll go, okay, that's about as far as we can go. And in this case, it was a conversation in Ontario and a, maybe one other province and they went, all right, we can do that much. We can talk in a second about the permanent section, which is something novel to BC among all the discussions, and I think it's a legit good long-term thing to keep. But in terms of the temporary measure, yeah, it's like the bar that is nationwide. We did not want to go above that. 
Yeah, so the province in their last budget spent or committed to spend, what is it, $69 billion, I think, was uh, what the operating budget was for 2021. So this works out to less than half a percent of the fe- of the provincial government spend this year. It's not nothing, but it's also pretty small. And was the the overall COVID spending was ten billion ish? I think that's the number that kind of sticks in my mind, plus or minus a bit. But. It, it's not such a big deal, and particularly when the interest rates are so low and there is a legitimate crisis response reason to bring it in. It seems to be really a case of the NDP being oddly stingy on this for no real good reason. So as I tease, the other part of this is a permanent paid sick leave program coming. This will take effect, as you mentioned, from January 1st, 2022. But a lot of the details are left up to consultations, including the number of paid sick days. I would have to hope that three sets a floor for this. I think my like dream scenario would be 10, but anything around five or up would be probably okay and a good set, a good system to Establish five's probably not unreasonable. That's a week of work, which, yeah, if you get a bad flu or something, that's the amount of time you'd one would probably take off. It's probably not a terrible way to enter it. So, yeah, I looked it up 3.25 billion dollars was the 2021 budget COVID spend. So, literally, just bumping that up by 10 percent would get you this. Also, tacked on, like, it's, it's such a small deal on it that it's weird they being reluctant to do it now. Also, this the, the other timing, weird thing about the timing is that it's basically coming in right as everybody in the province is going to be getting their first vaccine dose, which, all, I don't know, which almost makes it feel a little vestigial because people aren't going to be at the point where they're going to be fully immune, but there is some protection offered by the first dose. We should start to see the cases drop fairly significantly in the next couple weeks or so as a result. So this also does seem to be getting brought in literally at the last minute. We could always see a new variant pop up that is vaccine resistant. And in that case, we really need this, but yeah, it took so long to do this. And for so long, they had talked about the, like, over a year ago, Premier Horgan started talking about the importance of paid sick leave. The federal government rolled out the plan in late last year. And then Horgan said it, he's had been working on something throughout last summer. The legislature sat earlier this year, like, there were lots of opportunities to do this sooner. Like, it's something and long term, it'll be the good thing. But for right now, I don't know anyone that's quite like applauding this. Yeah, I think, like I said, it's it feels grudgingly brought in and they're getting no credit for it as a result. But yeah, the switching back to the province, I believe it's good that they're going to be bringing that in. And yeah. Honestly, pre-pandemic, we had a pretty terrible just working culture when it came to going into work sick. So I'm hoping between the uh, giant star of the last year and these new programs, that'll hopefully change quite a bit, uh, particularly as remote work has become more viable for a lot more people. Indeed. Just the importance of being able to have that flexibility, to have that advent that safety net. It's good. If they keep this employer contribution long term, though, I do wonder about that. We have a a number of businesses that do provide paid sick leave. I've seen estimates that it's around half. If the government is suddenly saying, if your company doesn't have paid sick leave, we will pay you up to $200 per day for it. Does that not incentivize companies to drop that as a benefit? Assuming there's not a union there to fight that, but yeah, that, that, that did strike me as well. It seems like that's gonna have to be a 
adjusted somewhat to avoid the obvious disincentive effects there. So lots to work out with the consultations that will be ongoing. If you're sick soon, you'll be able to take a day to go get your COVID test and yeah, hopefully you don't get sick again this year. Or if you do, hopefully you have a nest egg and can eventually access the federal benefit. What a policy. Let's jump into quick takes. Speaking of policies, let's jump into our roundup of BC Liberal leadership news as a website has appeared, kevinfalcon.ca, suggesting someone is about to join the campaign for leadership. The website just says ready question mark and authorized by Jeff Kelly, financial agent for the Kevin Falcon leadership campaign. This has basically been BC's worst kept secret for the past several months. Nevertheless, it's, I guess, good to finally see it start to move out from the shadows and we'll actually have a real leadership race going. What do you mean? Ellis Ross and Gavin Dew are in it already. I did. Gavin Dew's been out there and put together a campaign team and everything's going reasonably strong, but Ellis Ross took, what, three, four months to just get a website up? Like He does not seem to be giving it his all. It's quite something to watch these like websites be found before people are launching. Oh, it's amusing. Do we want to talk about Gavin Dew's announcement from this past week? Uh, yeah, I think it's probably worth mentioning briefly that I guess the other news on the leadership race front is we're starting to see some of the policies trickle out of the campaigns as over the weekend, Gavin Dew put out his, I guess it's technically his second, I think, because he did a few weeks back call on a, or announced that if he was to become leader and then premier, there'd be a commission into the province's handling of the pandemic, which a is public inquiry, even public inquiry. I, I can't recall if it was a commission or public inquiry, which is on. We didn't talk about it, but honestly, it's just a very good idea that absolutely should be the case for all governments across the country and the world, even on this, because there is a lot of mistakes and poor decisions and everything else that came out of the pandemic. There's a Big article today in the the South China Morning Post about how the health authorities had changed the rules around what qualified as an outbreak, and there's their investigation indicated that there was probably quite a few deaths that happened during the second wave in various long-term care homes that had infected staff members but didn't meet a the new threshold they instituted in the fall to require an outbreak protocol be enacted. So there's like a lot of just things that we could have done better. Absolutely good idea to do a kind of top to bottom review on that. But yeah, circling back to what actually came out this week, uh, it was over the weekend it was announced, is the Believe in BC Family Pack by Gavin Dew. It's a five-point plan helping investing in education parents save for their education by doubling the RSP, RESP grant, providing families with childcare options by modernizing the permitting oversight process to increase the amount of private sector childcare spaces. He'd also roll out some kind of family childcare benefit that I'm not clear exactly how this would work, but it would quote directly support grandparents or other designated family members who provide child care. Yeah, now BC... I guess, I guess a check. Yeah, BC introduced uh, a child grant modeled on the federal ones, what, last year that I think is starting to roll out this year in actual implementation. So it's not clear if this is going to be a, a top-up to that or if there's something else, or if it would be a different benefit. But yeah, but potentially a good policy there. Funding to clean up and make parts and playground safe from needles and other potentially dangerous items. Also good policy. And finally, 
require that bathrooms in government-run buildings install changing tables in nursing rooms and to provide tax credits for private businesses doing the same. A mixed bag in here. The RESP grant is something that's very beneficial for middle and upper class people who have the money to invest in it and take advantage of it. It's pretty much free money for people who can invest to send their kids to school, which like I'm doing it because if you can, it's a good idea. But if you, the people who need it most are the ones who can't afford to get it. So it's like a policy that probably does a lot to exacerbate inequality more than it actually helps. So and, uh, this is a program I'm not super familiar with. It's basically a, a matching grant, is that right? Yeah, so you get to have up to $1,200 a year matched if you invest. And I think the feds do a little bit more. So basically, we put $208 into an uh, investment account. You can do any kind of vessel you want. And it get if you do that amount, that maxes out your grant each year. You don't. There's not really an advantage to putting more in there, other than it's just like a savings account that then your kid, when they turn 18, can withdraw from to pay for tuition. Or I think when they turn 25, can just have if they don't end up going to post-secondary. So I actually don't hate the idea of that. In fact, I think it's a, probably a pretty good one because the advantage with the RESP grants and just the, the savings mechanism there is you got about 18 years for compound and interest to really kick in. So it's a high leverage intervention on that and would be perhaps good to make it not so much a matching grant or have a, a t tweak the initial parts of it so maybe everybody gets a certain amount and then there's maybe a matching grant on top of that. There, there, there's ways to think about it. But the ability to basically compound that over uh, the period of the child's uh, growing up until they're ready to head off to post-secondary school is not an insignificant benefit. And that does mean for a relatively small amount of funding from the government now, you actually have a pretty big benefit in 18 years from now. So I'm happy to see that get a boost. Yeah, like my big criticism of it is who gets the boost more than the boost itself. Like it's a valuable program in some ways. The other points vary. They're all around a similar kind of free enterprise type approach, which is what you would expect from a BC Liberal leadership candidate and what you would expect having heard Gavin Dew's interview with us a couple weeks ago. It's cutting red tape around childcare, which I know he and his partner were running a childcare or trying to run a childcare facility at one point and have complained about the red tape they found. But I'm not sure how much there is. And if there's somewhere I want to see red tape, it's around the people who are looking after children. Yeah, I, the, so the, the I'm, item I'm, that stands out when I talked to Gavin about this was, I think it was a city of Vancouver parking rule or something. That there, there was some dumb local like zoning rule that made it very hard to license the space, even though it was allowed just under the general like area zoning. It was some like right. nitpicky thing like that. Not a safety of the children thing. It is a, we have this rule, we're going to apply it whether or not it made sense and regardless of whether it actually improves safety at all. Right. And rules like that are not ones that are necessarily in the province's hands unless he's going to get more uh, interventionist than I think he committed to on our podcast. And similarly, the cleaning up the needles in our playgrounds and parks plank is a very municipal job and it's also one that has that fear of crime built into it as well the parks i go have been to although i tend to live in bougie neighborhoods i guess don't tend to have needles yeah i mean there was a image from a park in victoria floating around social media over the last couple of days of a, I think a Victoria Parts Department sign saying, parents, please do a safety sweep before letting your kids play in the playground. Like, that should not be the case. And we should have parts that 
parents don't have to do a rigorous check of before letting their kids play at. So it's an entirely reasonable thing to put a little money towards having that. But there's more to come from Gavin Dewey promises more in the family pack and more ideas. And I'm sure when Kevin Falcon officially launches, he'll have some ideas and maybe we'll get some from Ellis Ross as well that aren't just how to donate to him. Oh, and LNG is good. Next, the news I think we all missed earlier in this week, and maybe even last fall, is that longtime Conservative MP Diane Finley from Ontario has resigned. I guess she announced in the fall that she was not planning to run again at the next election, and then on Tuesday just stood up in the House of Commons and said, I've already done my long farewell speech. I quit. She said it a little bit more eloquently than I quit, but I resigned effective immediately. And then other MPs sent some nice words about her. And now she's no longer an MP and no one is really talking about why she quit yeah, this, this week. This is weird. So typically when a politician decides to leave the political life, they do one of two things. They either leave immediately altogether. The most recent example of this is... Bill Marno's uh, fairly sudden departure. Not doesn't always happen in the air scandal, but you either leave immediately after you've announced your retirement, there's a by-election a short time later, and that's that, or you're not going to run and you serve out the rest of your term. It's weird to see someone announce they aren't going to run, then wait six months to leave. I'm sure maybe, it's happened before. Maybe but like, she thought an election was coming sooner. It's not as weird as going from party leader to saying you're not going to run again to then sitting as an independent. <laughs> True, but... I think that's a one in a yeah. once in a lifetime. I mean, m kind of most thing. politicians are uh, less eccentric than Andrew Weaver. Yeah, I suppose the expecting a sooner election kind of made sense. The widespread speculation was that there's going to be a spring election this year. Now, the fairly disastrous third wave of the pandemic, I think, put us, or quashed that one. And the chances of having an election called in the next little while are pretty much non-existent, I think. So it, I can see if the thinking was, okay, everyone's expecting a spring election. I'll announce I'm not going to run again, and then come spring, I'll, I'll be out of the house of commons. Like, yeah, I, I could see that being a thing. And then just realizing when that wasn't actually going to happen that, oh, now well, maybe I should just leave now. Kind of makes sense. Yeah. And Aaron O'Toole put out in his statement that this happened on the eighth anniversary of her husband passing away. So maybe there was some emotional tie in there that she didn't want to speak publicly to, but was happy for the leader of the party to speak to. It was a bit weird overall, but her resignation is notable as well because it's a fairly safe conservative seat, and they've already acclaimed the next candidate there in Haldeman, Norfolk, Ontario, will be former leadership candidate Leslin Lewis, who came surprisingly close to actually coming from nowhere to win the Conservative Party. Yeah, this one also somewhat caught me off guard because apparently this uh, nomination kerfuffle started and happened last year what was the just pulling up the story here i think the cutoff deadline from the nominating process was something like october of last year yeah october uh, 13th of last year so i just completely missed that leslin lewis had found a seat to run in back in october yeah fellow conservative albert marshall who's an entrepreneur in the area wasn't able to run for the nomination because he didn't pay a $1,000 good conduct bond to the party via certified check or bank draft from a nomination campaign bank account, which is quite the way to require the payment of that fee. Yeah, from what I gather and what's in the story here, it's not a rule that is particularly strictly enforced and that a lot of candidates tend not to set up their campaign accounts until after they've actually secured a nomination and that this 
generally is not a thing that nom the nominating process really cares about that much. So there is the air of finding a technicality, which there can almost always be one found to turn a nomination in race into an acclamation. But in any case, I think she's pretty well set in as the candidate there, despite the grievance from last October. I guess we'll have to wait and see if it's going to be a by-election or just the full deal whenever the next election is. Yeah, so the uh, six-month clock has started as of yesterday when Diane Finley resigned. So I guess place your bets on whether or not there's going to be an election within six months or a, a by-election within six months or a full general election. Can't imagine the Liberals and Trudeau are in a particular hurry to make sure that seat is filled. So they will probably let the uh, clock run out on that one. Well, speaking of the Conservative Party, they won a lawsuit this week related to a controversy between them and the CBC over the use of CBC footage in election ads. So this blew up near the end of the election campaign in 2019. I think it was within the last two weeks of there where uh, CBC had taken issue with the Conservatives' use of a couple clips to make ads out of. And the CBC, I believe, took the Conservative Party to court over this. The ruling came down today that found that the party was able to use the material as part of the fair dealings provision of the Copyright Act. Yeah, overall, this seems like a reasonable decision. The judge speaks fairly of CBC saying it's in there. They have a justified interest in wanting to appear impartial and challenging this. But overall, the Conservatives didn't try to imply that CBC was endorsing them in any way, just that here are clips of people criticizing Trudeau. Yeah, I, I'm not sure many conservatives are going to necessarily agree with that characterization of the CBC, though. This is a thing that has generally been done, as long as I can remember, of snapping either newspaper headlines or short cl video clips and, and sticking them into election ads. And it's just, I think, generally being fairly standard practice. I don't think the Conservatives are the only party that have done that. And at least among the Conservatives I know, there was a perception that the CBC was taking a harder stand on this one or and was, I think, more eager to assert their copyright than they have been necessarily in the past when it came to election materials which I think rubbed quite a few conservatives the wrong way on that. Well, I look forward to the next election being purely each party running CBC attack ads against each other. Clips from CBCs. So this is uh, somewhat noteworthy, not just because it blew up into a minor controversy during the last election, but because apparently this is one of the first times a Canadian court has actually weighed in on this, on a specific issue between a media organization and a political party in this manner. So it's uh, good to get a little clarification on that. A bigger controversy from this past year that you may have already forgotten about was the We scandal. Remember that? Remember when that was going to bring down the government? Well, we spent well, a summer talking about that. And from the purely self-interested, how do I fill an hour of podcasting every week? That was actually a welcome uh, relief because... It was the summer of a pandemic. There was nothing else going on to talk about. Nevertheless, I think we all grew tired of it by the end. And it's maybe the last story that comes out of it as the Conflict of Interest Commissioner. It's the so, actually the Ethics Commissioner the ethics ruling commission. on the Conflict of Interest Act. This is Mario Dion. I had to double check the story. Yeah, no, I've listened to enough boys in short pants. I always know there's something off about the various titles there, but I can never quite remember what it is. Yeah, so he reviewed the allegations against both Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and former Finance Minister Bill Morneau in relation to the We controversy. Found that Bill Morneau breached the act and he determined that 
his relationship with the Kielbergers amounted to a friendship and should have been recognized in his and his staff dealings with the Kielbergers and their organization. It's so nice to have a like formal declaration of friendship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are officially friends. And that's bad in this case. Yes, an officer of parliament has determined that you are friends. With respect to Trudeau, he found that there was not a specific breach and that while the parliament's ethics rules generally require that there be not just no conflicts, but no perceptions of conflicts, there was not actually a clear enough case that and a specific provision that was violated that he could then hold the prime minister in breach of yeah it seemed like justin and craig were friends but he couldn't he wasn't sure he could he didn't find the friendship bracelet so because there's no friendship bracelet a trudeau gets off like the the mario dion seems to spend a significant amount of time pointing to how much there is a apparent conflict between trudeau and the kilbergers and this in this issue but that because Parliament and the MPs have voted at least twice or at least looked at this issue twice and decided not to require there be an apparent conflict, he can't find Trudeau guilty or he can't find him in breach. Good for Trudeau, even though everything else in this report seems to be pretty damning. Yeah, the liberals get to walk away with the... The Prime Minister didn't technically breach the, the rules as determined by the commissioner, so... It's all good. But and, honestly, conveniently, I and conveniently, Bill Morneau has left politics. Yes, very conveniently. I, I, I think by the time the next election rolls around, that nobody's going to be talking about we, and if they are, they, Aaron O'Toole should probably fire his comms people or his strategists at that point, because and I think the country has probably litigated this to the fullest extent possible, and... Everyone is more or less ready to move on, I think. But nevertheless, I, there's probably some lingering distrust of the prime minister that's emerged out of this, but not one that I think can be easily leveraged in campaign ads. My favorite bit of this is a tidbit that I'd missed during all of the previous WE coverage in that Mark Kilberger apparently wrote an endorsement for the front cover of Bill Morneau's daughter's book about refugee girls in Kenya. This is a book she wrote while 17 that was like making pen pals with teenage girls in Kenya and ex just exploring what their lives were like. And then Mark Kielberger called it inspiring on the cover. And it became a Heather's pick at Chapters Indigo, whatever it's called now. Huh. So th this may be just my West Coast bias, but before the whole we thing blew up, I did not really have a good sense of who the Kielbergers were. And admittedly, if I had seen their name attached to a blurb on the front of a book, I would have not registered that at all as something to pay attention to. I think probably because you were like five to ten years too old to me as well to have gone through school when we was doing its thing. Yeah, I think I'd vaguely heard their name prior to this whole thing blowing up, but yeah, it was definitely never not an encounter I had at any point during my education. Moving on, it was announced today by Greyhound Canada that they're going to be shutting down all their services permanently. This follows a 2018 decision uh, that we talked about at the time where they pulled out of Western Canada and are now pulling out of Canada overall with the exception of a few routes that connect through to the U.S. But as of tonight, there's going to be no more Greyhound service in the country. This is bad. It's not great. Yeah, I haven't used the Greyhound too many times, but I know for many people, it's like the only affordable way to get between population centers in this country like even if you're a big trains person and think we need to build out a lot of trains this country has a lot of towns that the trains aren't going to go to not without a ridiculous network which i'd be on board with but bus these buses are a very efficient way to do it unfortunately it's not a very profitable way to do it which is where 
we need more government, frankly. <laughs> BC Bus North has proven that it can be done. It just takes money and political... Yeah, Canada's a country where it's, I think, hard to run a profitable bus service in a lot of cases. Long-haul trips, you're going to be competing with airfare, which for the most part is going to be people's first choice. And, like, between cars, trains, and planes, I mean, the, the bus generally ranks fairly low on that, and it's crappy as the via service is in western eastern canada where they actually have it it's still in some ways more convenient a better experience than the bus I, i'm not surprised greyhound was in trouble it's been a while since i've ridden one too but like it was not a particularly enjoyable bit of travel and i can generally see why people who'd had other options opted to go those other routes. And that's particularly true on the you know, high volume routes, say between major cities where you actually have those alternatives. But it's precisely those high volume areas that are the uh, profit generators. So it, just with everything, it, it does not surprise me that they found themselves in a difficult financial spot, particularly with the pandemic adding on top of that. Huh. So yeah, at this point, I think it's probably unlikely that, particularly in the rural areas, you're going to actually get a viable business model going for a bus to replace that. So yeah, probably a spot for the government to step in on that one. Speaking of cuts, the BC government apparently told cities on Monday without really any warning that the Climate Action Revenue Incentive Program, known as CARIP, was no more. Yeah. This is a 2010, this is a conditional grant program dating back to 2010 that essentially just refunds cities the carbon taxes they pay as a way to encourage them to invest that money on climate action. Yeah, so this was a bit of a sleeper announcement. I got reported by Glacier Media on this one. I, I went looking for the actual press release on the government website and there was not one that was easily found at all. So it really does seem the case where they're trying to quietly kill this program for some reason, which isn't entirely clear. It might just be a like redirection in priorities, collect the carbon tax from everyone, don't have this kind of opt-out, and then do more direct funding. Yeah, I, still, it is like, weird I, to do it. The, uh, in, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to do. And the various local people quoted in the article here definitely sounded surprised and more than a little annoyed by the whole thing. It's just weird. Like, if you're trying to redirect funds elsewhere, why not just do that when you're doing one of these big announcement times like the budget and just quietly insert the change that is being rolled into whatever other climate action programs going on. Now it's in it like a month later, quietly, but in a way that still annoys all the main stakeholders, and it just seems questionable. I got nothing. Yeah. See, <laughs> it's weird. It's, it's a weird thing. It's not a huge amount of money, I, th I think. Was it? Uh, it it's $1.2 million to the city of Vancouver alone. Yeah. 8.4 overall to the city to various municipal governments. So it's not a huge amount of money. Like realistically, you're not going to buy much climate adaptation for a mere eight million dollars. But you know, still, probably the incentive effects were the main benefit there. Just dropping the those portions of it seems odd, because more so than the actual funding is the just the incentives to do stuff that come out of that. Maybe it was just a matter of this was a BC Liberal program and the BC NDP wants to do it a different way. And it's not going to win any awards, so do it quietly. Hope the bad press only lasts a couple days. Yeah. The, the, and the, move on. Yeah, though if they'd done it with the budget or whenever they'd done a, another slate of climate announcements... 
could have just easily been rolled into there without having it as a standalone story, which probably would have been better. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs>